Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Miletic. I am the editor of Architecture and Design magazine, and today we are talking with Robin Mellon, the CEO of Sustainability Supply Chain School. So the Supply Chain Sustainability School is uh, recently established, uh, so it's uh, still in that startup organization territory. Um, but we are funded and supported by larger organizations, leading organizations uh, around Australia, people like John Holland, uh, Lendlease, Mervac, Stockland, Langer, Rourke, Dulux, to provide free sustainability learning resources to all of the small, medium, and large organizations in their supply chains with the idea that if, if everyone just knows a little bit more, then the outcomes, the, the buildings we develop, the buildings we design, the, the infrastructure uh, that we construct will be that much more sustainable and not just uh, environmentally sustainable, but economically and socially sustainable. So we work with small businesses, medium, large, um, to educate them about why sustainability is relevant to what they do. What do you see are some evolving and on the horizon issues in Australia when it comes to the ar- architecture, engineering and construction supply chains? Evolving issues at the moment and ones which are gaining both in visibility and importance. Some of those are around uh, human rights and modern slavery uh, and the visibility of modern slavery in our supply chains, uh, not just in construction materials or in architecture and design, but in coffee in clothing, in in all of these things. So uh, modern slavery and I guess the the provenance, where our stuff comes from, is is one of them. Um, Another is the the whole procurement area. Um, And so not just purchasing, buying buying stuff, buying materials, but procurement, that long-term whole-of-life vision that we have for the materials that we use. So there's a new uh, sustainable procurement standard called ISO 2400, Uh, which uh, came out earlier in 2017. And the way in which that is going to be used through our supply chains is going to change the way we develop. Um, And lastly, I think uh, the the innovations around materials, uh, what we build with, uh, how we design and what we build, um, innovation is moving very rapidly. So we're not just looking at the traditional building materials. We're looking at hybrids. We're looking at um, energy-saving and materials-saving uh, construction materials that can really change the way that we build. Okay, you, you, you mentioned a few, a few things there. So can you, let's talk about built environment sustainability. So the school has sustainability in the title, uh, the Supply Chain Sustainability School. And I'm asked on a regular basis, well, what does that really mean? What is sustainability? And it's one of those words for which there is a widely accepted definition. You can go to the Brundtland Report uh, from a few decades ago. Um, But I've been fascinated by the way in which sustainability is broadening um, month by month. And so the metrics that that I've worked with for many years are are mostly environmental metrics, things like energy, water and waste. And the metrics around, you know, uh, kilograms of carbon per square meter per year or around water savings or um, the carbon in our materials or or the the, the miles they've traveled – those metrics are rapidly broadening, and we're starting to look at economic sustainability much more, uh, things like business resilience, uh, not just building resilience, but business resilience and community resilience, and risk management. Um, so every board, every major company will consider the risks that they're going through every year that they're, uh, they, they need to withstand. And part of the economic resilience is making sure that the risks 
in our supply chains, in what we do, are also being managed. And there's a lot of organizations not looking at those properly. And lastly, and probably the, the one evolving the fastest and gaining in, in traction and visibility is around social sustainability. And that includes things like health and well-being, the, the well-being of the people within the buildings, uh, whether those are uh, you know, the, the tenants in terms of offices or the, the shoppers in terms of retail spaces or the people living in the, the homes and apartments. So health and well-being is one of those issues. Human rights uh, and modern slavery, um, as we look through our supply chains and look at the practices going on there. Um, and, of course, social value and social enterprise, the real value to communities or society of what we're doing. And so I guess you'd equate that to uh, to organizations or to uh, businesses or supply chains that are not just doing a little less bad, but they're having a positive social impact. So they're, they're helping people within the community, uh, within organizations or uh, within a social context. In modern slavery twice already, um, how much of a problem is it in Australia in terms of the built environment and or, or the uh, construction, engineering, and architecture sectors. Modern slavery is one of those issues which I think people have known about for many years, um, and I'm not just talking about in the construction sector. We can look through, as I've said, coffee or clothing or, or cars or construction materials, and we can start to take a look at where things have come from. There was uh, two years ago, 2015, a Modern Slavery Act introduced in the UK, which um, made it a requirement for organizations with a a revenue of over 36 million pounds, so that's uh, about $50 million roughly, um, to actually declare. Uh, They have to report what they're doing to uh, eradicate modern slavery within their supply chains. That work has been repeated here in Australia and we'll be seeing a modern slavery act here in Australia within the first half of 2018. And this will, at this stage, it's probably organizations with a revenue over 100 million Australian dollars, so larger, but of course that will cascade through all of their tier one, tier two, tier three suppliers, etc., to report on what they're doing. Now, they don't have to be perfect. They're not, it's not a, you know, we have completely eradicated. What they have to do is report, declare what they're doing. And so it's the transparency around that, that if you're looking at two organizations, organization A and B, you can see that one is making a, a, an attempt to uh, look back through their supply chain, work with each of those tiers and eradicate, and organization B is doing nothing at all, then this, is the, this transparency is how things are really going uh, to uh, start changing the market. Now, your question is how much, of this, how much is this a problem in Australia? There's very low incidences of modern slavery, and we can define that in lots of different ways, uh, forced labor, uh, forced marriage, uh, prostitution, um, bonded labor, uh, where people don't have the freedom to leave. But all across all of those definitions, fairly low prevalence of modern slavery here in Australia. It's estimated just over 4,000 people. And there may have been incidences of baggage handlers or fruit pickers or low-paid, um, often low-skilled workers not having the freedom to leave. But that also means there's a lot of complacency in Australia. If we look at uh, our supply chains and pat ourselves on the back that there's not a lot of slavery in Australia – We're fooling ourselves because the vast majority of our supply chains go straight to the Asia-Pacific, where 
the prevalence of modern slavery is significantly higher. And it's estimated there's over 40 million people living in conditions of modern slavery. So nearly twice the population of Australia at this time. So we need to start taking a long, hard look at where our stuff comes from if we're going to start improving that. Now, obviously, there are risks attached. There's also a lot of opportunities because the more you start looking, the more you find the inefficiencies or the double ups. And so I, I don't think this should be seen as a threat or as a negative. I think we are long past the time that we should be taking a serious look at our supply chains and moving those to better models. Cool surpassed a thousand members. Is this indicative of the importance that the industry places on on sustainability and supply chains? And where are your membership numbers now? So yes, we passed a, a thousand members uh, earlier this year. We've just passed one thousand one hundred. So that that climb is steady, and I would like to see that increasing. You know, every single month. Um, I think uh, if you. As the saying goes, if you give a man a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, Of course, I see that supply chains are the most important thing that we could be dealing with at the moment. But I also see this as one of the great untapped opportunities for businesses, big and small, from, you know, sole traders through to multinationals to take a good look at their supply chains because they are remarkably inefficient. Over the last decade, for example, we have asked remarkably few questions about where our stuff comes from. How many people touch it? How many touch points there are along the way? And so there's huge opportunities to do these things better, not just from an environmental or social perspective, but from an economic perspective. These these supply chains could be so much more efficient. Um, Some of the, if I may just divert for a moment, some of the most efficient supply chains that I've seen are almost one-to-one. So uh, working with, for example, uh, a restaurant in New Zealand, where the the chefs have a one-on-one relationship with the farmers. So the farmers who are producing pork, producing pigs, uh, actually speak directly with the chefs. They can work out quality and availability and what they're going to do with the the meat. Uh, And in turn, they can start to look at, you know, can we do something different? We can offer something different here. The, The restaurant supplies are going back into, you know, the pig's feed. So they're looking at very short, very efficient supply chains without 20 people, 20 organizations transporting, you know, delivering, getting involved along the way. That might seem a slightly random, organi- uh, random example, but what I'm trying to say is uh, that uh, sustainability in the supply chain is on the increase. I think this is one of the, the, the big areas of opportunity. There are a lot of um, issues that, that may need urgent attention, like modern slavery, as you just mentioned. Whilst you obviously see some that may well need, may well not need so much attention, um, which issues would you say are urgently needed need attention, where others can be perhaps put on the back burner a bit? It's a, it's an interesting question when you start to try and evaluate which issues are are more urgent or you know more of a priority than others, um, and it's hard because I I almost can't say none of them are you know they're not priorities. Um, I think what we need to look at are certainly, you know, some of the human rights abuses, modern slavery within our supply chains, which we've mentioned. Um, When making, when trying to evaluate these priorities, what we need to look at is the relevance. And, you know, running an educational body, albeit one that provides free sustainability learning resources, our biggest challenge is to make these issues relevant to people. Otherwise, we're just telling them information that they don't see is applicable to them. 
So when we talk about energy, for example, or carbon, a lot of people either switch off or just don't see the relevance between the carbon conversation and global warming or the Paris Agreement or the UN Sustainable Development Goals or any of these very big picture issues and what they do every day. So one of the priorities that I I will pick and say really should be a priority in, in everything that we do is around energy and carbon. And the the Supply Chain Sustainability School has, you know, basic e-learning modules around energy and carbon. But the trick is making this relevant because if we're to try and limit global warming or climate extremes uh, in any way, we need to start looking at having a a maximum two-degree economy. So having an economy that is geared to reducing carbon, reducing uh, the, the contributors to these climate extremes. To do that, we need to be running maximum two-degree projects or two-degree supply chains. And that's where people struggle to see their part in that. So, yes, every person that comes to site or that supplies a service or a product or a material uh, is part of that, but our challenge is to explain how they're part of that. And they actually have the opportunity to make that better. Getting on to the issue of cladding, which, you know, juxtaposes on what you're talking about in terms of, you know, the issue of supply chains getting more efficient – Cladding's been in the media now for the past, well, the issue of cladding has been in the media for the past five months. Um, we've recently had the New South Wales government um, put in a fine regime of some you know, million dollars per company if they do the wrong thing. Is the issue of, of cladding, is, is that almost the canary in the coal mine, if you like? It's a really good question because once you <clears throat> excuse me, bring up uh, the issue of cladding or non-compliant materials, um, immediately, uh, I won't say it's a minefield, but there are lots of different areas where things are going wrong. Some of those areas revolve around the supply chains and what people know. Um, some of those revolve around making short-term decisions, short-term financial decisions to tick a box that aren't, in, you know, aren't involving any of the longer, medium to long-term um, uh, uses of the product or you know life expectancy or how the product is going to be used and I think at the base of all of these discussions there is a fit for purpose discussion conversation that has to be had is this product fit for purpose but one of the other you know main areas that that isn't being talked about is the issue of substitutions and amendments sometimes on site sometimes deliberately to save a bit of money uh, sometimes Unknowingly, well, this this product's about the same as that one. We'll we'll just put that one in, and so I think there's a lot of different issues that need to be unpacked around, as I said, short-term decision making, around fit for purpose, around what people know, around those substitutions and amendments, with some of the you know the basic uh, requirements being that these buildings must be safe. These buildings must be safe. They must be uh, you know economically, socially, sustainably viable. Um, but we are starting to make longer-term decisions around, you know, whether it's a home or a block of apartments or a block of offices. How do you build a resilient um, yet sustainable supply chain? I think the clue is in the word. Sustainable is about sustaining. Um, now, if I may, you know, a, a short personal aside, um, I grew up in a house in southeast England, uh, which is now about 420 years old. Um, Beautiful house, um, very simple construction, so timber frame, uh, tiled roof, uh, wattle and door walls, so plaster and horsehair walls, very little foundation, as we found if we ever had to change anything, but well-maintained, you know, weatherboard exterior, well-maintained, cool in summer, warm in winter, which was perfect for, for the UK. But that's my definition of sustainability, 
If you if you went to an architect today and said, I'd like a house which will still be around in looking about in the same condition in 420 years' time, I don't know what they do. I don't know how much you get charged. I don't know whether they'd take the job or whether they'd think you were crazy. I think a lot of architects would rise to the challenge. I, I, you know, I know some amazing architects who are designing for that long term, and I'm aware that's an extreme. But I hear different figures around how long we're designing office blocks or uh, residential towers or, or homes for. And if they're coming down after 20 or 30 years, I don't think we're doing this properly. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with taking a building down after 20 or 30 years, but the materials that we use for a 20-year building are going to be very different to the ones we use for a a 200-year building. And so I think we need to design appropriately. Um, Yes, that long-term thinking is part of sustainability. We want things to be around, but if we're going to use the materials, we, we want them to be around in 100 years or 200 years' time. I look at I look at the buildings that I love. I mean, here in Sydney, uh, you know, the, the, the State Library, the Burke Street Library, some of these buildings, you know, buildings we love will be around forever. Um, they're not particularly ornate. They're, they're lovely, but they're, they're fit for purpose. They're built to last. They've got that, that longevity in their design, um, in the way in which they're constructed. And they're also resilient. These buildings are cool in summer and, and can, be, can be warmed in winter. So they're very much appropriate for what they are. That long-term view, I think, is a, a behavior, a societal change that we need to return to. Historical buildings aside, what would you say are some of the latest um, you know, buildings that you've seen or that, that have been constructed where they've really you know, gone that one step further when it comes to sustainability? Some of the best buildings that, that I can think of that are around at the moment or, or, or newer are the ones where they, yes, are taking that long-term view, but they're also looking to not just minimize their footprint, but have a positive impact. So there's buildings uh, just along the road, 200 George Street. Uh, it's known as the EY Center. Um, there's lots of discussions with my peers around whether it's beautiful or not. I, I love the look at it. I think uh, it's an extraordinary looking building. And inside, you know, the, the rounded edges, the different materials used are very evocative. But there is certainly, uh, you know, there is a nod, there is a respect paid to what was originally there, to the original shoreline, to what they found during the building process and the materials used. It's also one of the first buildings in Australia to be entirely LED lit. Um, and there are uh, signs you know, all the way through in the lifts. Uh, you can look to see how much energy is being used, how much is saved by the destination control lifts. You can, you can see how the building is reducing the footprint or having a positive impact uh, in the case of the, the Song Cafe in Mervac's headquarters. There's a lot of other buildings, uh, the Al-Bahar Towers uh, over in um, the Middle East, which uh, has elements of biophilia about it, the, the, the skin uh, of the, the thick fabric, which opens and closes like petals as the sun passes around it. I look at it and go, well, this is not a new technology. This is what flowers and plants have been doing for millennia. Um, but I look at the way in which that's been replicated in a very simple way to offer shading during the hottest part of the day and allow the building to breathe as it cools down. And so there's elements of, of biophilia or just good design uh, about that. Um, you said historic buildings aside, I think we have a lot to learn from the way we once built. Um, whilst I don't think you can pick up you know, traditional British techniques and put them down in Darwin and expect to be a success, I think there's a lot to be said 
for maximizing the light that's coming in, minimizing the heat that's coming in for big thick walls to to have thermal cooth, um, but to rely as much as possible on fresh air, on natural daylight, uh, on natural materials uh, to try and achieve an outcome that is not just economically or environmentally good, but is good for the occupants. If you could project yourself another 20 or 30 years, what would you like to see the biggest change in being in the built environment in terms of sustainability? So I think over the next 20 years, um, we need to see some major changes. And the two which I'd pick are firstly around supply chains, uh, about knowing where stuff comes from, that provenance. At the moment, if you go to Bunnings or uh, you know, go, go down to the hardware store, you can pick up an FSC certified set of garden furniture. So Forest Stewardship Council certified uh, set of furniture. Um, if you walk down the road for coffee, uh, you can buy an FS, uh, sorry, uh, fair trade certified coffee. You know where it's come from. And whilst in some cases you might pay a little bit extra for some of these, you know that in that case that the, the coffee farmers, the, the, the small holders, have been paid a living wage, are being helped with uh, dealing with climate adaptation. So you know where things, you know where the timber in the FSC certified furniture has come from. I think that is going to be in 20 years' time, we're going to know where everything comes from. And you can start overlaying you know, virtual reality or you can put on goggles and you can actually see the footprint. You're, you can get your phone to tell you as you pass something the provenance of something. But it means that whether it's big glass panels or carbon-neutral bricks from Tasmania, we're going to know where everything is from. And that's going to be really important, not just because you can look at the, the real footprint, the true footprint of the building, but it'll make it much easier in terms of replacement, in terms of replication. You know, we want to we want to do this uh, this effect in this new building, um, but also in helping people to understand uh, the impacts of what they do, how they work, how they live, uh, how they design. I think the other is that we're going to be looking at buildings that don't just, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, don't just do a little less bad. They're not saving four percent this year. They're actually having a positive impact on communities, on people within them. So they're having a positive or restorative effect. And we can look at the Green Building Council and their trajectory towards carbon zero or carbon positive buildings. We can look at the Living Future Institute and the way in which they're trying to design buildings that have a positive impact. Uh, I think the buildings that we design and uh, put up in 20 years' time are as I said, not going to be a little less bad. They're going to have a positive impact on the people within them, but that will be quantifiable. Not some romantic notion about, oh, I think I feel better within this, but actually energy, water, waste, materials, health and well-being of the people within them will be quantified and people will be making decisions about where they live or where they work based on those scores. I'm not going to work in a 50-year-old building that makes me sick I'm going to work in this building, which has a positive impact on my health, on the environment, on my well-being. Um, the way in which we choose apartment buildings, uh, apartments to buy, I think is going to be very different based on those scores, on the positive impact they can have. So two big changes, you know, supply chains, the provenance of our, of our buildings and materials, uh, and in the positive impacts they can have. So Robin, what can people do to be part of these changes? 
I guess there's a first and a simple step. They can go and have a look at the resources on the Supply Chain Sustainability School website. There's hundreds of free resources, e-learning modules, templates, videos to watch. Um, they're all there, uh, www.supplychainschool.org.au. Uh, you can register. It's all free. Uh, you can do the self-assessment. Uh, there's a long learning journey ahead of you. Thank you, Robin. It has been utterly fascinating. You've been listening to Robin Mellon, CEO of the Sustainability Supply Chain School for the Talking Architecture and Design podcast series.
I don't think there's a formula that we can look at for trying to work out energy savings necessarily. Um, I think we do need to be taking that long-term view. Um, I think if you look over a 20, 30, 40, 50 year lifespan of how a building is going to be used. Obviously, that will change as use patterns change, as demand changes. But I think we need to look at the technologies available today, uh, put as many as we can afford into a building to try and reduce the the environmental impact, the, the economic burden, and improve the you know the the, the, the social impacts for occupants. Um, I know that for for some buildings, replacing LEDs in patches in uh, swathes uh, for existing buildings is you know a good way of doing it uh, it minimizes the cost so you're not doing it all in one go and you're doing for example all of the emergency lighting all of the car park lighting things that are left on uh, and so we'll have the biggest footprint you're doing those all in one go I don't think for new buildings there is as easy a, you know, this technology is the answer or this formula is the answer. It really is a case of looking at how the building will be used, working with what you have in terms of natural light, but also looking at the use patterns of the building and how the people in it are going to be using it. So no formula, but I think that long-term perspective and the, the, the ability to realize that, that the technologies that we think are the answer today will most likely change over the next five to ten years. The LEDs we're using today are not the ones that we thought we were going to be putting in five or ten years.